Welcome to TNS, the new school at Commonweal, a collaborative learning project exploring nature, culture, and consciousness. Join us now for a conversation with artist and naturalist Keith Hansen and host Steve Heilig. To follow along with the illustrations discussed in this podcast, go to tns.commonweal.org and search for Keith Hansen. There, you'll find a PDF with the slides that you can download. Good morning, everyone. We're going to go ahead and get started. Welcome. I am Kira Epstein, the program coordinator at the New School at Commonweal. And we are here today with our host, Steve Heilig, to welcome naturalist and bird illustrator Keith Hansen to the New School. In just a couple minutes, I will turn this over to Steve to welcome you further and introduce Keith. We have some great events coming up in September I want to tell you about. You can find all of our upcoming events by going to our website at tns.commonweal.org. On September 17th, I'll be welcoming author Kathleen Dean Moore and naturalist Hank Lentfer to the new school to talk about her new book, Earth's Wild Music, Celebrating and Defending the Songs of the Natural World. On the 19th, Steve will be back. He'll be in conversation with Dr. Anna O'Malley, director of Commonweal's Natura Institute, as part of Commonweal's Open House. On the 24th, join us virtually again with Michael Lerner and Richard Heinberg. They are going to talk about his new book, Power, Limits, and Prospects for Human Survival. We are recording this conversation. We'll have produced audio and video files a bit available on our website. And you can also find our recordings on SoundCloud, YouTube, Apple Podcasts, and Spotify. Ken Adams is behind the scenes as always. Thank you, Ken, for helping us with production. And finally, thank you for your donations to the New School. Your support allows us to make these events available to everyone, regardless of their situation. If you haven't already, you can donate on our website. And now we're ready to begin. Steve Heilig and Keith Hansen, welcome to the New School at Commonweal. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you very much, Kira. So... Greetings to everybody, wherever you may be, and uh, hope you're having a good day. This is one, uh, I don't know, we've done hundreds of talks now in the new school, and we tend to focus on what might be called uh, heavy stuff. Uh, we have a lot of uh, talks on healthcare, on the environment, death and dying, and all of that. Um, and they are, uh, to my mind, always very valuable and enlightening. And today we're doing something a little bit different, something I've wanted to do for a long time, and that is talking with my friend Keith Hansen, who is uh, truly seen as a, a, an expert on birds, uh, not just locally where we live and uh, travel around, but uh, travels around the world and publishes books on it. So what triggered this talk was the publication of his new book, co-authored here, um, that we're going to see a lot and talk a lot about. Hansen's Field Guide to the Birds of the Sierra Nevada, done by Keith Hansen, Edward Beatty, and Adam Donkey. So we are going to have a talk about this book and about his own life. So welcome, Keith. Thank you. Thank you for having me. And uh, thank you to New School for hosting this event. I really am excited. Yeah, so... We're, we're both, uh, we're going to go worldwide and keep it local too, because Commonweal and Keith are in the same town here. Here we are. <laughs> Let's start with you a little bit. 
I mean, I've known you a long time, but uh, the, your history of the dis more distant past, your beginnings, I don't know that well, other than the little bit that's in your book. So tell us about where were you were born and uh, how, you know, what you were thinking of in school and then how you first got involved with two things. Number one, birds interested, and number two, being an artist. Oh, great. Well, thank you. And um, God, I guess I would probably have to go way, way back and um, originate with the fact that my father was a naval aviator. And so we lived in several places in the United States as he would be, you know, transferred around. And so I was literally born in a little town, Beeville, Texas, and near Corpus Christi, because my dad was stationed near there. I was only like three months old when we moved, but we then moved to the mouth of Pearl Harbor. So my first memories of my life, well, my first memory was my mom brushing dirt off of my hand saying, honey, don't eat dirt. So that was my first memory. But we lived right across the street from, you know, missile cruisers and battleships and destroyers and aircraft carriers and just all this military brawn going in and out of Pearl Harbor in front of our house. So when you're a little kid and you have three older brothers that are getting excited because an aircraft carrier is blocking up the sun and you go look at it. My dad would be describing all the different airplanes and the various battles that these ships were in and the battle of Midway and all sorts of things. He would, I, he would often jump up from the dinner table and run outside to identify an airplane going over by the sound of the vibration that it would make. And he would point out the shape of the wings and how many propellers and look how the tail's shaped. And a few years ago, it dawned on me that I've you know turned into my father and gone from identifying metal birds to um, <clears throat> feathered ones. And so uh, we lived in Hawaii till I was a little kid. And then we moved to Maryland when I was in first grade. So from first to sixth grade, my life revolved around, you know, taken off into the woods behind our house that seemed to go forever. My three older brothers were all born a year apart and they were all in a cohesive unit about four years older than me. And so I was always happy to be on my own, just kind of catching salamanders and frogs and lizards and snakes and just playing out in the woods. And it was in about sixth grade that my older brother, Rob, was working on his bird merit badge to become an Eagle Scout. It was the last merit badge he needed. And so he had set up a grid across the street from our house, you know, A, B, C, D, E, one, two, three, four, five, across and identified all of the trees and then went in there and identified every species of bird. Oh, here's an American robin with a worm in its mouth flying from square B12 to I13. And he would draw it on the map and, oh, it's got a nest up here. Or, hey, it's feeding chicks. And in essence, he made like a breeding bird survey before I'd ever even heard of one. And he just kind of made it up. And it was on one of those days that he showed me a bird I would imagine some of you are familiar with, or most of you, the cedar waxwing. And cedar waxwing is just an exquisite bird. And um, literally... I can just image, uh, you know, envision it in my mind's eye so clearly that bird was kind of the trigger that got me totally passionate about birds. I couldn't believe anything was so beautiful that you could just go outside of your house and, and see these things. And, and then from that point on, I, you know, eat, drink, sleep birds. My brother and I tore up the countryside for the last, sadly, it was only three months before we moved. I wish I'd had more time to bird watch in Maryland, but then we piled into the station wagon, drove to Fresno when my mom and dad were both born and raised in Fresno. And so after my dad's service in Maryland, he retired, moved to Fresno, opened a toy store, big hobby shop. And my mom always taught us all how to draw as kids growing up. And so with her guidance and literally her scholastic direction of how to render an image, how to take a three-dimensional object and put it on a two-dimensional piece of paper, 
was what she used to raise us and keep us occupied and creative and happy. And so, all, all, you know, everyone in the family is very creative. There's five boys and a girl and uh, four of us are full-time artists. The other two are very creative, but having a dad with a hobby shop and a mom teaching you whatever you want to learn about art, we all, you know, kind of headed in that direction. And so that's how the art started, you know, and the birds started. And it was in about 12th grade that I just started, I'd find a dead bird on the side of the road and I would start drawing it. And then my mom and dad said, you know, honey, why don't you, uh, why don't you paint a mural in your bedroom this summer? And so I spent, oh my God, three months doing from floor to ceiling, you know, ocean, underwater, volcanoes exploding, jungle, jaguars in the trees, birds all over the place. And, um, it was just kind of like the house to hang out in. And as I sat around and drew all day long, kids would come over and just hang out. And uh, we would, that's how I kind of got started. And then I, I literally, the first book I ever did was a coloring book on birds of the Sierra. And then I did a book called Discovering Sierra Birds with Ted Beatty, who's the same same guy here, Ted Beatty, that, that uh, wrote the status of the birds in this book. But we did a book uh, back for the Yosemite Association many years ago, and then skip ahead 20 years, we were then asked again to come up with a brand new book, all new art, all new text, everything. And so that's what this is, <laughs> in a nutshell. So four out of five siblings are, are artists. That's amazing. Did you do any um, go on to do any formal training in, in art, or is it all self-taught and all by your mom and stuff? Just by my mom. I mean, I took um, art in high school, but it was to get out of English. Right. Um, <laughs> no, it was, yeah, it was just banging around in the forest and the marshes and the ocean and the jungle and all over uh, looking at birds. And I, I had this reoccurring dream. It's really bizarre. When I was in high school, I had a dream that where I literally would, you know, be sound asleep. And in my dream state, I would come over a hill and here would be just like jungle looming and lurking off in the distance. And I would see these silhouettes of strange giant birds and I could hear sounds coming out. And in my dream, I would start running towards it. And then, you know, daylight would happen or, or a river would open up between me and it, or somehow I, then this, this dream happened crystal clear dozens of times but in the dream, I could never get into the jungle. And so when I got out of high school, I stuck my thumb in the air and hitchhiked to Mexico and Guatemala and then to the Yucatan and then up to eastern Canada and then back to Fresno in a big three-month odyssey. And once I put my toe in the jungle, I never had that dream again. And so I'm really drawn to the, the tropics, the New World tropics. My wife is from southern Mexico, so we do lead birding tours to, you know, Panama, Guatemala, Costa Rica, the Yucatan and uh but yeah, um, I, I really was passionate about that and then kind of started doing these book projects. And my brother Rob got a job at Palomarin when we first moved to Fresno. This is in 1970. You know, we're these dorky little teenagers. I was in seventh grade and he was like in 10th grade. And he, I remember him telling me, God, I heard about this cool place up in Northern California, and it's called the Point Reyes Bird Observatory, and they catch birds there, and they have these islands that they go to offshore, and it's near this town called Bolinas at Point Reyes. And so our family in 1970 jumped into the car and drove up to see where Rob was going to volunteer, and that was when I first met Bolinas. And fell in love with it as a seventh grader way back when, and then just kept coming here every possible chance I could get. 
and then you know worked on the on at the Point Reyes Bird Observatory for many years, handling hundreds and hundreds of birds, and out on the Farallon Islands on nine different years, spending about five months out there handling hundreds, if not thousands, of birds, and so by having these birds able to look at them as you study them and, and hold them and open their wings and their tail and, you know, really examine them and feel how much they weigh and the way they carry their weight and then photographing them and sending them on their way is just a really, really great way to learn a lot about birds. And so I just kept massive amounts of information about these birds. And, and now I videotape the birds. I've videotaped about 1200 species in the world. And while the footage isn't national geographic, perfect footage. It's fine enough for me because when a bird moves, I can hit the pause button and go click, 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 and find the perfect image, something unique and different, and just pause it on my TV. And then I just bring my sketchbook over there. And that's where I come up with a lot of my positions are from the footage that I take of all the birds. And um, that's kind of how I put the art together and how I put this this book together. But I, I hope I'm not kind of jumping ahead too much, but that's how Whoa. I got started doing birds. Yeah. And so from, was, where did you, from Fresno, where did you move to? What was the next place? Uh, Bolinas. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, so, I literally moved to know, Bolinas. I met a woman it, who invited me to caretake her house for four months. She said, I'm going to be in Europe. I need someone to caretake my house and water my roses for four months. And I, you know, uh, I, so I took her up on it. And those four months were back in 1986. And so she has long since passed on, but I caretake it with my wife for her uh, grandchildren, actually. So we're still there. And that's the reason I get to live in Bolinas is because of the kindness of these people to allow us to live there. And it's interesting. The modern, the modern culture of Bolinas is somewhat traced back to 50 years ago when there was a large oil spill and Many of the uh, seabirds and shorebirds were covered in oil, and many people came out to help clean them up. So it actually started with a, you know, a reaction to uh, trying to save some birds. And you live right on the lagoon, which is part of, I believe, the Great Pacific Flyway, right? You know, this is where birds come through. So as many years ago, I haven't asked you this in probably at least 10 years, but how many species have you seen right from your house there, right on the lagoon? Or Well... We you, bird, you used to count. Like, <laughs> bird watchers like to count and they like to keep yeah. lists and they often like to keep yard lists. And so when, when we moved to this house, we um, started a yard list back in 1986. My friend, I say we, because my friend Peter Pyle, who was the steward on the Fairlawns for the Point Reyes Bird Observatory, many of you probably know him, was there at the house for like a year and a half before I moved there. And we kind of care took it together. And then he moved, uh, to, I think, to Point Reyes Station. And anyway, um, to put it into perspective, there's about 10,400 bird species on Earth. So 10,400. From Mexico to the North Pole, in other words, the U.S. and Canada, there's 1,000 species, maybe 1,005. So one-tenth of the bird, world's birds are in the U.S. and Canada. From our deck, we used to have the biggest yard list for North America, but we got our rear ends kicked by a yard in Texas. We're at 281 species. So 28% of all the birds ever recorded in North America, in the U.S. and Canada, have been seen from that one yard in Bolinas. My gallery is 231 species just from this room, which apparently is the most birds from any single room. This room you're looking at me in. 
230 species from this room, which is pretty wild when you think about the diversity. And, and Steve's right. This is on a migratory path. You've got the lagoon. You've got the ocean. You've got freshwater. You've got the you know native oak and conifer hillsides. There's ornamentals here. You're on a migratory path. Um, birds mix it up in, in, in funky weather between the sewage ponds and the lagoon. So there's things crossing over all the time. And right now, as things are just starting to really gear up for fall. These shorebirds are starting to show up from the Arctic that are already done nesting in, in northern Alaska, the curlews and wimbrels and godwits and some of the other sandpipers. I just saw greater yellow legs yesterday. They're all starting to head south. In fact, yesterday, a new species of bird was discovered from Marin County, and it's only the fourth record of its kind ever to be recorded in California. It's a bird from the Gulf Coast. You'd see them in the Yucatan or Georgia or Florida, but these young birders, they're like, God, 16, 17 years old, photographed a bird called a sandwich tern, T-E-R-N, like the elegant tern. Look a lot like an elegant term, but they've got an all black bill with a yellow tip out at Lemature yesterday. They've got some pretty uh, provocative photographs and video of the bird. So you never know, you know, things are always showing up here and it's always exciting to think of this, you know, turn. I don't know what did it cross the isthmus of Tuenepec near Oaxaca? Did it come across the Panama Canal? Uh, how would that thing get to the Pacific coast is a, is a weird thing to think about, but um, we live in a very, very special place. The diversity of birds here is insane. Uh, so there's a lot to see. Well, and for those who don't know Keith and haven't seen him in action, he's known around town as somebody <laughs> you've never seen without uh, binoculars <laughs> in his neck. And if you're trying to talk with him about something, his ears are always tuned to what birds might be around. So right in the middle of a sentence, you go, oh, wait. There's a, there's a, and there's a, and there's a, and I, I did a walk with you once I remember many years ago, we went up Audubon Canyon with a few people and, you know, the, the kind of sonar and radar you have for birds is so amazingly developed, you know, is that something that you feel you have naturally or did you really, I mean, did you really practice that listening and seeing, you know, distant species and, and, and uh, quiet ones, even it seems you hear them all. Well, I guess if you're interested in it, then it's not um, a labor of any kind. It's just like, oh, what is that? You know, and it's, 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 uh, I will agree. It's very difficult to learn birds at first. A lot of people get very frustrated because it's just like this mishmash of sounds and they don't really know what to make of it. Is it a song? Is it a call? Is it a location call? Is it a flight call? There's all these different sounds that almost every bird emits. And they all have some meaning. They're not just like, oh, let's enhance the human's day with so joyful song. They sing for a purpose, whether they're trying to attract a mate, whether they're trying to buffer other males, whether they're saying, hey, we're over here, we're feeding and we're fine. There's no Cooper's hawks around or, hey, there's a Cooper's hawk, everybody. Whatever that conversation is, you can learn that with birds. So I guess when you're when for me being interested in birds, I'm always um, I'm always uh I try to be as attuned as I can for anything unusual. And usually that, you know, often that'll pay off if you hear something and say, oh my God, what is that sound? And then if you track it down, oh yeah, that's that weird sound that the robin does, or, oh my gosh, that's this species. And so listening to the, and, you know, uh, it gives you a bigger range of observation to hear because, you know, you can hear a bird half a mile away if it's a loud enough bird that, you know, sandhill cranes and swans on a, on a foggy winter day in the valley, you can hear them from over a mile, you know, so that opens up 
up your sphere of, of observation, or you can bring it in close to everything that's right near you. Um, so yeah, the, 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 the observational part of it and then the voice part of it are two things. And, and also the flight part of it, you know, so much of what a bird does is how they fly. It's almost like their fingerprint. I feel, I mean, I feel like you could almost do a bird book without even showing a bird perched with its wings closed. Just every single bird in flight is somehow slightly different. Their cadence, the way they move, just like every human, every animal is different the way they move. And so there's little subtle nuances and things about the way they, they fly. And um, so, yeah, um, just all of the above, um, the voices are, are a real special, special part. And I, I annoy people to no end. My wife, sometimes I'll be talking to her and something will fly behind her head. And if she's in the middle of telling me something, I can see how that gets to be annoying. So I try to like, just stay focused right there, you know, and not see the peregrine falcon that just caught a duck behind her head, you know, and react yeah. to it. Well, I've seen that, so that's okay. I wait, you know, hopefully, I don't take it personally, right? <laughs> yeah, don't take it personally. <laughs> so you mentioned that somebody suggested this new book project twenty years ago, and you worked on it. Uh, you know, almost as long as I've known you, I guess. How many years? The book was 23 years, and it was probably 25 years ago that that Steve Medley from the Yosemite, I mean, from the, uh, the um, you know, it was the Yosemite, it's now the Yosemite Association, and they um, suggested that we do this, and, and then we got a grant from the Packard Foundation to actually create the art and then the writing. But I, that, but, and that was the first, and I'm going to be weird and hold this up. This is the first book that came out written by Ted Beatty, and I did the artwork in it, but that was my only contribution. I didn't write the book. And this is the companion guide to this. This book is the life history. This is the breeding, the biology, the status, the food, the nesting, the distribution, interesting stuff about every bird, but not how to identify it. And that came out about two or three years ago, and it's all the same species. And now there's this book is the field guide, which helps you identify the bird. And that's what we're going over today. And that's the one that I wrote and illustrated about, about 1,300 individual portraits. Okay, so you are going to show us some of those and talk bit so if we could go to the slides now and we'll hear from and see some of this this brand new amazing book to follow along with the illustrations discussed in this podcast go to tns.commonweal.org and search for keith hansen there you'll find a pdf with the slides that you can download okay before i get started whenever i get to a species group a lot of times there's birds where there's only one species in that group, the rentit. The rentit is a rentit is a rentit. There's no other types of rentits. But with things like ducks or herons, in this case, I will often give a quick overview as to cool things about herons or how many species there are on earth. And then I go into the description. I was given um, a full page per species here. And so every bird gets what I call the hook. You know, there's like an interesting tidbit at the beginning, then a verbal description of the bird, the actual plumage, and then the flight description, the voice description, the range and status and distribution, and then similar species other birds that it looks like. So every bird gets the hook, the, the description, the flight, the voice, the range, and similar species. 
But I won't be reading all of that for you here. I'll just be reading tidbits from each one. So I'm going to start off with everybody knows the great blue heron. And um, just some of the thoughts uh, that I put down for great blue heron starting off is ranging in size from the tiny least bitter to the stately great blue, herons reach maturity in two to three years. Statuesque. Height changes with posture. Roosting hunkers with neck coiled. Bulky stick nests are built in trees and marshes, usually colonially. Feeding stands over four feet tall, serenely forages from lake to lawn, relying on glacial pace and somber coloration for anonymity. Prey found, fate sealed, bird springs dagger-tipped serpentine neck into ill-fated fish or gopher. And then the flight flies with slow, deep beats on broad wings, Coiled neck forms graceful curve, legs trail. Landing extends neck, appearing momentarily crane-like. And then the voice, a startlingly indelicate, gruff, croaking, also gives loud, quacking, Nesting colonies produce wooden clacking and guttural belches, all sounds worthy of a junior high school gym class. So that's great blue heron. <laughs> So the next species is turkey vulture. Four families of raptors constitute diurnal birds of prey, as opposed primarily to nocturnal owls. New world vultures and condors have featherless heads and non-lethal bills and claws. And then describing the bird, um, larger than osprey, smaller than eagles. With keen sense of smell, this gregarious, Seemingly courteous mortician feeds on carrion with little conflict. Cloaked in undertaker's black, they warm themselves, appearing to welcome fellow mourners with wings held wide. And for flight, prefer soaring over flapping. Ascends to great heights, searching for carrion. Tipped, tipping and rocking holds wings in shallow V. Has curious and diagnostic habit of bending the wings downward at the wrist, flexing like a weightlifter at the mirror. So if you ever see a bird of prey flex its wings downward like a, like a weightlifter in the mirror, that's a vulture or a condor and never a hawk. Hawks don't do that. The next species is the northern goshawk. This is one of my favorite birds. Hunter of meadow and forest, our largest exhibitor is nearly red-tailed hawk size. Berserk assault describes hunting style, tough for enduring the elements, muscular for sudden acceleration, and long-legged for chases through forest tangle. Body parts of prey litter the ground below the nest, a macabre but characteristic trait. In flight, soaring birds appear beauty-like, Hunting, goshawks become an entity somewhere between a boxer and a tornado. With a whirlwind's fury, it rushes, dodges, and punches through forest clutter with a prize fighter's agility. With grim indifference, it snatches and dispatches quarry, be it grouse, squirrel, or jay. Yeah, goshawks are pretty gnarly. Um, let's see. I think great horned owl is the next. Great horned owl, lord of the night. Roosting in seclusion, deep within shaded forest, or sheltered in a cranny, high on a cliff's face, this sturdy, full-bodied, and fearsome predator possesses the erect ears and focused glare of enormous cat. 
Daylight elucidates a large motionless form, the color and pattern of autumn wood, the bane of the songbird world, uproarious commotion and agitated notes erupt upon the disclosure of this ominous carnivore. Face set within a slowly swiveling turret, it stares down through narrow eyes of sleepy indifference. This look of calm and passivity is deceptive, for when dusk settles, this powerful figure moves forth into darkness to seize and spirit away prey, be it the size and gravity of a cat or the insignificance of an annoying bird who hurls insults by day. Um, and then the flight, shaped like a wine barrel with a bowling ball for a head, flies low on deep beats from broad rounded wings, swoops upward to land. So that's Great Horned Owl. <laughs> You're listening to a TNS conversation with artist and naturalist Keith Hansen and host Steve Heilig. The next one, uh, maybe some of you have seen this at night in the spring on the gravel road by Palomarin, the common poor will, related to the East Coast whippoorwill, named after its beautiful call. So the common poor will. If you could breathe life into a small pile of leaf litter, bone dry bark and fine gravel, your creation might just resemble a common poor will, named for its soothing call. The voice reaches surprisingly far on still spring or summer nights. About the same weight as a lesser nighthawk, it has a shorter tail and round wings, often detected at roadside, with eyes reflecting orange, a small burning coal rising into the darkness is likely a poor will flushing. Night jars, possess an elongated comb-like central toenail, the pectinate claw. This well-formed grooming tool removes moth dust from plumage after a night's foraging. And then in flight, I write, fluttery and moth-like, springs from the ground or low perch to hawk large flying insects, rocking side to side, glides holding its rufous wings at 90 degree angle. Poor wills typically then drop and vanish at the base of a bush. <laughs> That's the poor will. Let's see, the next one, we all know the Belgian kingfisher, you know, from being near anywhere near water, ocean, salt water, fresh water. Uh, right here in Bellinas, the boat dock is a great place to see the kingfisher. And then I encapsulate the world's kingfishers by saying, ranging from sparrow to crow sized, Earth's nearly 120 kingfisher species exhibit audacious color combinations, large, often crested heads, long straight bills, and minuscule feet. The bird, just larger, smaller than the American crow, this confidently antisocial bird is visible from great distances. The male is boldly slate blue and white, one of few species where the females are more colorful than the males, and the female's reddish band effectively subdues her strikingly pied pattern. Flight, notably skittish, flies directly and powerful with rowing motion, disp displaying freckled wing patches. Head motionless, staring down, its lethal spear hovers with body at a 45 degree angle. Prey spotted folds wings, plunging headfirst below the water. If successful, pops up into flight, wriggling quarry in bill. And the, the fun thing that I love about kingfishers uh, for the voice, unreservedly vocal. Translated, kingfishers' clamorous rants would not be appropriate for children under 18. 
bold, raucous, in your face, bobbing its expressively crested head, it seems to be saying, are you looking at me? With a dry rattle advertises its presence with the cadence and sweet appeal of a rapidly firing machine gun. Tail slowly pumping, kingfishers produce a soft, throaty, annoyed chatter. So very much about what kingfishers are about is their voice and uh, just their kind of in-your-face uh, attitude. <laughs> so how are we doing on time? For a few more? Yes, go ahead. Please. Okay. So this one is a real personal favorite. This is one maybe not many folks have seen, but the black swift um, is an amazing bird. They breed behind waterfalls. Uh, their nest was just found, I think, in the late 80s or early 90s, the first nest known to science near Big Sur. That's why no one ever found them is because when a waterfall leaves the earth and shoots out, there's a little uh, uh, ceiling of water, if you will. And under that lip, that's where the birds breed. So black swifts, uh, this is what I wrote. There are just over 100 swift species worldwide. Three occur in the Sierra and the sexes are similar. Descend into Yosemite from on high, and Half Dome's polished face rises to meet you. From dizzying heights, black swifts rocket across Bridal Veil Falls or a hair's breadth off the brow of El Capitan. Acceleration and maneuverability as playthings, velocity and momentum, matters of law. These are creatures of great prowess. In flight, they are built for life on scythe-like wings. Employing languid flapping and soaring glides, climbs high above Earth, covering hundreds of miles in search of insects daily. Capable of flying continuously for months, annually vaults several trees each migration. From the sanctuary of slate-gray clouds, it shifts into an unconstrained projectile reaching stupefying speeds. So that's Black Swift. And here's another aerial, very, a couple more aerial birds. Now, if you go to the end of Wharf Road or anywhere, you see those kind of grapefruit-sized, even under overpasses on the freeway, you come across the bird called the, the cliff swallow, which winter way down in South America or Central America, but they come up here to breed. So what I've written about cliff swallow, if a barn swallow is a sports car, then a cliff swallow is a pickup. As if wearing a backward baseball cap, this no-frills construction worker means business. From the moment it arrives, this colonially nesting day laborer busies itself with masonry and upkeep to its adobe home. Scoops of wet cement are carried in the crop of this mud dauber who spits them up forming strong grapefruit-sized globes. Lasting several years, they're designed with downspouts for quick getaways. After the tricolored blackbird, this is our most gregarious nesting songbird. And the flight is highly gregarious and communicative. Choreographed flocks effortlessly enter congested suites in unison. Higher, with unlimited space, flock integrity diminishes. Voice, unique if not bizarre, gives conversational babble, electronic buzzes, static clicks, and synthesized feedback loops. If a colony is disrupted, irked birds circle in mass, uttering annoyed, whiny, downward, see you, see you. 
So that's the cliff swallow. And then jumping right to the next swallow that I compare it to, the barn swallow, the ones that you often see nesting under an eave or in your barn. Uh, the barn swallow I've written is shaped for speed. With a nearly worldwide distribution, this aerialist looks fast even when sitting still. Perched or in flight, this long-distance migrant likely possesses the longest wings in relationship to its body of all Sierra passerines or songbirds. The flight, smartly tailored, a bird of sleek design, graceful lines, and polished exterior. Flashy tail band comes standard along with the internal navigation system and automatic braking. Expect tremendous performance from this bird on the wing. Nimble in crowded situation, enjoys rapid acceleration. Corners beautifully and with natural cruise control built for the long haul. Voice perched or in flight chatters excessively with sweet, cheerful, tinny, scratchy, static, computerized notes strung together, driving away predators or escorting troublemakers to calmer skies. Alarmed birds give a rising strident <laughs> That's barn swallow. And then who doesn't know the crow, whether you love them or you hate them, with their lives intricately interwoven with those of humans, it's difficult imagining a world without crows. Gregarious in winter, they stroll front yards, harvest plenty from farms, mass in Halloween trees, and roust drowsy owls. Flocks dissipate in spring as birds pair up to breed, then regroup in fall. Opportunistic and shrewd, crows watch, calculate, and figure things out. Um, and then the, I, I write about the fact that it walks with a streetwise swagger. In flight, winter flocks congregate with no apparent formation. Crows flap with wingtips at their sides, whereas ravens paddle with wingtips below and behind, rowboat style. Ravens can soar, crows can't. Soaring is gaining altitude on thermals without flapping. Crows can glide or sail on air for great distances, but air that's always moving upward over landforms. Um, so that's it for crow. And then here's kind of an offbeat species that, that maybe uh, a few of you have seen, but if you go down south of Bakersfield towards the really southern part of the Sierra where it becomes very uh, kind of Mojave-esque and very deserty is this bird called the Leconte's thrasher, which sadly is a, a fairly endangered species but lives just in the southwest. Leconte's thrasher melds effortlessly into its arid habitat of dry sand and thorn scrub. A foot moves about like a miniature roadrunner sprinting quickly through the sand, head and tail lowered. Pausing, it slowly raises, then lowers the tail. Continuing, it scampers through a living room of Joshua trees, down a hall of creosote, across a den of sagebrush, and out the foyer into a yawning solarium of exquisite desolation. Slightly larger than the northern mockingbird, its slender, strongly curved bill casts a distinct silhouette. In flight, somewhat ungainly, moves low with labored flapping. Touching down in a bush or hitting the ground running, the bird vanishes into thrasher-colored habitat. And then the song is pure in quality, gives repeated sing-song phrases, unburdened by imitations of other birds, often 
questions without long pauses. Call a questioning FOIP or double FOIP. <laughs> so that's the LeConte's Thrasher. Now, here's a bird that was apparently John Muir's favorite bird, the American Dipper. And dippers are totally unique. They're the world's only aquatic loving songbirds. They look, they act like a sandpiper getting in the water and stuff, but they're actually fairly closely related to things like robins and thrushes. So this is what I've written about dipper. This is the bird that famously can fly underwater. Dippers, unique. Dippers are a family with five species dispersed in the Americas and Eurasia. Grayish brown or chestnut, some are boldly punctuated by white. Unlikely in appearance, wondrously adapted. This aquatic songbird survives in a realm where granite rock and surging ice water relentlessly criticize one another. In tempestuous currents, birds swim effortlessly across the surface like a tiny duck. Diving, it submerges using its wings. It flies underwater searching for insect larvae. Blending into an environment constantly in motion, it rhythmically bobs its bulbous body. Communicative or not, blinking white eyelids are highly visible from great distances. And then in the flight, I talk about when a dipper is rocketing a foot or so above surging waters, its rapid wing beats appear as a blur. As it flies underwater, its flaps are deep and cleaving. Encountering a dipper away from its turbulent world is almost unheard of. That's it for dipper. Um, here's a very subtle bird, but uh, many people know the house wren, and um, you'll often hear them off in the background singing. And they're even though they're subtle, they're they're quite divine. House wren. After the barn swallow, this little brown bird has the widest distribution of any land bird in the Americas. North to south, east to west, it has wandered, flitted, and crept among the greatest tangles connecting these two vast landmasses. To slow down, smell the roses, and appreciate the subtle, coax one into view and get to know this little bird. Behold soft gradations, scrawls of delicate barring, and welcome embers of warmth to the tail, a whisper of an eye ring, a touch of pale to the bill, and this elegant exemplar of understatement is complete. The voice, an auditory delicacy, is delivered by a creature seemingly brimming with joy, bubbly and jubilant, ecstatic notes trip over each other just to burst into public space. Song, highly variable, typically longer and more complex than the Buick's ran, with jumbled notes, liquid trills, and different phrases. The call is less scratchy than the Buick's ran. So that bird, you know, they go all the way from Alaska to southern South America, from California to Brazil to, to Maine to Florida. They're, they're literally everywhere. And uh, I think that's uh, the next species is the Pacific wren. And this is a bird that... If you hear somebody clinking two little pebbles together, like tink, 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 and you're walking through the forest, you might want to think about the Pacific Wren because they make a little pebble, double pebble clicking sound. Okay, Pacific Wren, wedded to cool shadows. While it's difficult to behold this energetic gnome-like creature, it's well worth the effort. If eye to eye with this diminutive custodian of the conifers, pause to consider the hallowed halls in which it dwells. 
whether broadcasting crystalline notes throughout a lush metropolis of coniferous skyscrapers, permeating forest cathedrals with tumbling trills, or pouring forth liquid rivulets of song beneath 3,000-year-old sentinels, Pacific wrens fill space with sound. On the street, this breath of a bird appears mouse-like, hopping beneath lacy ferns or venturing into webby crawl spaces. And then in flight, in shaded forest understory, difficult to see well, flies short distances through dense habitat, appearing as a tiny, wound-up, dark, tailless bird. That's Pacific Wren, formerly known as the Winter Wren. And we're getting towards the end here. We're at Warblers. This is a, a, a bird that breeds up on Mount Tam in small numbers, and sometimes you see it coming through the area. It's a hermit warbler. It's a true western warbler. It doesn't occur back east. Hermit warbler. Reaching for the heavens, this bird of lofty conifers seldom surrenders from its realm of fragrant skyscrapers. At dizzying heights, high above the forest floor, it hawks insects from the tips of outstretched boughs, making it difficult to observe from, say, Earth. Mercifully, however, infrequently, it ventures down, down, down toward terra firma, allowing safe views for nature lovers with a fear of heights. Initially, appears somber colored and subtle in power pattern. However, when its golden dome rises into view, its parenthood instantly becomes apparent. So that's the hermit warbler. And the next one, this rather devilish looking bird, is called the horned lark. And the horned lark is one of my favorite birds. They give the most amazing song. Terrestrial songbirds, larks are represented with nearly 100 species worldwide, but the, and the horned lark has over 40 different subspecies across the northern hemisphere. So while there's 40 species worldwide, they're almost all Asia and North Africa, but we have only one, the horned lark. So the horned lark is, um, their flight I describe as long-winged, nimble, and exceptionally swift. Flocks sweep frightfully close to the ground, cleaving the air just above it. Death-defying, the breeding display is dramatic. Slipping Earth's embrace, the male ascends to dizzying heights. Lost in the warm folds of summer's hazy sky, this lark is a challenge to spot. Teasing lift from thermals, it appears to float like a delicate waterfall pouring forth song, sweet tinkling notes sprinkle, cascade, and tumble back to earth. As the curtain closes on this airy performance, the male folds his wings, bows earthward, and plummets stone-like. A hair's breadth before impact, he mercifully levels off to land safety. How am I doing on time? You go ahead, or you got a couple more, or? Yeah, I do. I've got, I think, four right. more. Um, here is the California towhee, a bird that I'm sure many people know, and you see them in usually in pairs right around Bolinas. California towhee, not a bird of extremes. The Golden State's towhee shuns California's hottest, snowiest, and soggiest locales, but is common nearly everywhere else. Fidelity courses deeply through this humble, primarily sedentary and down-to-earth bird, nearly always in pairs. They go about their days next to and with each other. What they lack in a resting pattern, unusual form, or quality of voice is outweighed by a virtuous devotion and dedication to their mate. 
comfortable around humans, birds frequently enter homes to forage on tracked-in bird seed. California towhees defend territorial borders from neighboring California towhees with noisy scrapes and gravel-kicking tussles. All right, the next bird is a bird maybe you've all seen. Sometimes they attack people's rearview mirrors on their cars for days on end, or you'll see one scoot across the road, but you'll obviously hear this bird's song all around Bellinas quite often, and it's the song sparrow. Are birds happy? Do they express elation? If jubilation is measured by frequency of song, then this must be a cheerful bird. Much of the year and at different hours of the day, this songster saturates wooded spaces with joyful refrain. Rare in sun-drenched land, infrequent in lofty canopy, this down-to-earth bird tends the domain of the low-lying. In elaborate tangle, swaying cattail, or cool understory, it melds. Typically doesn't form flocks, but any caucus of winter sparrows usually has one or two in attendance stroll through its living room, and from behind shadowed lattice, it observes and assesses. Inquisitive, rarely vexed, it offers soft calls until its castle sanctity is restored by your departure. That's the song sparrow. And uh, everybody knows the, some people call them the snowbirds, the Oregon and dark-eyed junco. And here's the junco, familiar and common. This bird is widely distributed in the Sierra, welcome at backyard feeders and encountered on mountain trails. Observant naturalists filter through flocks for rare species. Dark-eyed juncos are diverse in appearance. Differences may be age or sex related. Birds might be a rare subspecies, partially albino, or different by individual variation. Junko watching cultivates habit-forming skills for untangling variation and subtlety. So good little tools to get into juncos, and you'll start to notice diversity of birds. I think we have a couple more. <clears throat> uh, the yellow-headed blackbird, very rare in Marin, but you go to Mono Lake and they're, they're thick over there. As my friend Kirk says, they're lousy at Mono Lake. They're all over the place. Yellow-headed blackbird, breeding or tending young, most birds seek seclusion and calm, correct? Perhaps. After swallows, marsh nesting blackbirds are as gregarious as breeding songbirds get. And the yellow-headed? It reproduces in a state of utter commotion. Find yourself within a colony, late spring, wild and clamorous, scattered about with egos swollen, chests inflated, displaying males boast and swagger, Bobbing on arcing cattails, wings flexed, they endorse their flawless wing spot with the subtlety of a boxer kissing his biceps. Bustling females come and go, bills packed with leggy groceries for perpetually famished chicks. With the single-minded purpose of genetic renewal, males create unearthly noises that startle and amaze. And the voice I describe as song, two to three clean introductory notes, followed by grinding buzzsaw and strangled gulping. That's the call of the yellow-headed blackbird. 
And then the very last bird, uh, if you go to Costco or you go uh, to Las Galinas sewage ponds, you might just see the great-tailed grackle. This is a, a friend coming up from Mexico. These guys are have traveled north 10, 15 miles every year, and now they're all the way up to Oregon, even into Washington. I've, I've seen them in Bolinas a few times. So they are here, and they're here to stay, the great-tailed grackle. Any any uh, Zocalo or downtown center in Mexico that you go to in the evening, you'll see literally hundreds to thousands of these birds coming in and having a big party every night in the middle of every town in Mexico. Great-tailed grackle. Appearing intently focused, female stares pale-eyed through smoky mascara. The life of the party and ever the showman Males brim with self-esteem. With a swaggering stride and a sachet of their prodigious tails, grackles appear noble, if not a bit snobby, proudly carrying their prominent bills aloft. Displaying, the male points his bill high and lets his oar-like tail hang. Vertical, he flattens his plumage as if squeezing the air from it. Properly slick, his high gloss is presented gift-like to the female, whether she's watching or not. Congregation, congregating each evening in communal roosts, marshes, or waterside parks, noisy birds gather, socialize, and in the safety of numbers, rest. So those there's about 15 or 20 uh, birds that I picked out that I thought might be fun. <laughs> so there's a good sampling of both the uh, beautiful drawings and the descriptions. It's funny, when you read them, you, you have a poetic voice. And I've heard you read, read poetry once, at least. And um, so you said something very interesting. I was going to ask you this anyway. You said in one of the descriptions, are birds happy? And, uh, you know, I don't, I'm no expert. I, I've only read one book, about, a whole book about a species uh, was uh, Bern Heinrich's Mind of the Raven, which, you know, you've, I'm sure you, you know. And a whole book kind of exploring the psychology of a particular bird, you know. Um, when you are watching them, when you're observing and thinking about them, I mean, do you find yourself wondering what are they thinking? I mean, the, the, the issue here with, with, with you know, in, in this whole world of this kind of science anyway, is anthropomorphizing. It's, it's saying, right. I'm, I'm putting my feelings onto them. I'm imagining what they're saying. But you spend a lot of time with them, do you, and, and you have a certain amount of it in your book where you're, you're talking about their behavioral aspects that come from your observations but i mean is this something you think about a lot what are they thinking <laughs> um, yeah kind of almost constantly you know a lot of people will say well birds you know their faces are kind of inexpressive you know you can't they're not like a mammal that can actually change their facial expression but on the contrary you know um whether it's emotion or temperature you know bird, people will often say wow that bird is fat well, it's probably not fat. It's probably cold. When birds are cold, they fluff up like they're putting on a down coat. Um, like a hummingbird, if you see a hummingbird hovering and it's like a fluff ball and you can't even see its feet, you can be pretty sure it's probably between about 30 to 45 degrees outside. If you start to see the tips of the toenails, it's probably in the 40s to 50s. If the toes are sticking out, it's probably in the 60s or 70s. If the bird is squished down skinny and its legs hanging all the way down, it's probably in 90 to 100 degrees. So like if you look at hummingbirds in Phoenix and stuff, you'll see them all skinny with their legs hanging down, thermoregulating, and then vroomp, when they fatten up, those are birds in the cold. Now, if a bird is sick and not feeling well, they often will fluff up to conserve energy. Um, but when you see a bird lift its crest, it's either 
like a sign of interest, um, like, whoa, what's going on? Um, and when they flatten it down, it's usually a fear or, you know, when they squish all their feathers together suddenly and start looking around, especially when they look up in the sky, anytime birds are always looking on this axis. But if you see a bird turn its head sideways and look up, they're not looking at the ground at a bird seat. They're looking at the falcon that's 3,000 feet up in the air that you might not even see. So every time I see a bird tilt its head sideways and they do it real quick like that, boom, I go outside and look up. And it might be a feather blowing by. It might be a 747, a monarch. But, you know, 70% of the time, it's going to be at least a vulture. You know, they know vultures aren't going to hurt them or anything. But if the bird's starting to get pointy, like a merlin or a peregrine or a kestrel, oh, my gosh, they give it full heat. And they squish their feathers down and their eyes get big and they stop moving and they freeze. Um, whether birds are happy, you know, I've watched videos. You mentioned the ravens and crows. That Those birds, you know, you see these videos of them like filmed in Russia where they take a, a yogurt lid up to the top of a house in the snow and flip the lid over and jump on it and ski down to the bottom of the roof and then grab the lid and go up and do it over and over and over again. Or ravens that, that ski on their back down snow and all the other ones standing around start vocalizing and jumping up and down. Are they excited? Uh, is it fun? Uh, you watch ravens in flight doing barrel rolls and flipping upside down. <clears throat> it's hard not to believe to anthropomorphize and believe that that's not fun. Um, you know, you see young burrowing owls, you know, filled with the exuberance of youth. These little chicks that are now coming out of a hole in the ground for the first time are bouncing around and, you know, playing tag with each other, if you will. And, you know, you always hear that that's those are you know, traits and attributes and things that are going to come in handy, which is true, you know, for later in life to avoid predators or, you know, whatever, to maintain surprise for them catching food and stuff. So it's just like kids and what, you know, it's, it's hard for me. I'm a human. I, I don't know what's literally inside their head, but it's, it's hard not to believe that they're experiencing some level of pleasure or joy or, Hey, the wind conditions and thermals are just right. Let's go do this thing. And we're capable of it. Come on, let's go do it instead of just sitting around all day so yeah, yeah. hopefully that answers that question a little bit who knows you know but no, you just exactly. know. No. you're listening to a tns conversation with artist and naturalist keith hansen and host steve heilig uh, so i said at the beginning we weren't going to get into heavy stuff but you, we can't help it here i mean you've been you've been observing birds now for decades and we live in a time of great ecological change, uh, climate in particular, but not only, we now have uh, increasingly widespread wildfires as well, and just uh, habitat encroachment, you know, of development and so forth. So what have you observed mostly in terms of, you know, the, the prevalence of species? Are populations going down? Do you see them shift in ways that you think are in response to these ecological changes? And, and Yeah, you know, as a kid growing up, I always had heard about, you know, these down the road changes that we're going to be looking at. And I thought, well, you know, no pun intended, but I always thought it would be a, a glacially slow process that that our human calendar, our experience of our own lives 
might be so brief and ephemeral that we won't even realize these greater changes that are happening. But I couldn't be more wrong. I mean, to me, it seems like it's um, accelerating at a rapid rate. Uh, it's like every year it gets more and more. Um, you know, you don't know if it's like a, bl- a, bl- a blip in the pattern, but, you know, this last year, people all over California, it's like, where are the birds? You know, in migration, they're just, we just didn't get the birds. Well, that article came out a few years ago that said, you know, from 1970 till 2010, one third of the world's birds are gone. Well, when you have, you know, windows, power lines, pesticides, global warming, fires, cats, uh, you know, cars, less habitat, more people, more, more, just more, you know, less insects and more and more of everything human, it's not surprising that there'd be less. Some birds are doing better. Hey, flowers are nice. We love our hummingbirds. Hummingbirds happen to be like on an increase in North America. They're doing just fine. Um, But some of the hummingbirds, like the rufous hummingbird that breeds in Alaska, we're seeing this frightening drop of rufous hummingbirds, which is kind of scary because they really need to cover hundreds of miles to go from, you know, Southern Alaska and British Columbia all the way to Southern Mexico. Whereas our anise hummingbirds that are here, you know, they can go from flower to flower. They don't really migrate too far. They're wedded to the West and there's always flowers around. So certain species, uh, you know, are being affected, you know, and we heard about those numbers of a third of the birds going, but Friends of mine are like, well, what about the last three years? Don't you see this distinctive lessening of birds? But on the other hand, with COVID, when when nature kind of got a year off without tons of people being out in it, a lot of bird people that I've talked to have said, you know, God, that area where I've studied for years and years where the joggers and the bicyclists and people always are, now this year there were no people. Oh, my God, the birds are exploding there. There's tons of birds. So it's like if you just let it be a little bit, nature has a great way of bounding back if you if you let it be. And uh Large insect birds that eat large flying insects are the birds that are really heading south now. Things like nighthawks, whippoorwills, large flycatchers, bird uh, shrikes, especially because of people's preoccupation with pesticides along re- along roadsides. Oh, get rid of the bugs! Any place I go with lots of insects, I just am filled with joy. Whether it's butterflies or bees, because. There's just so fewer insects now than when I was a kid growing up. I remember my dad having to pull the station wagon over to clean the windshield off, you know, because there were too many bugs on the windshield. I only wish I could see that. I was just in Mexico a few weeks ago. And, oh, my gosh, the bugs down there are great. I mean, they're everywhere. There's, you know, all kinds of wide diversity of insects. So uh, the more insects we can have, the better. And, uh, you know, just diversity, diversity, diversity of native plants. You're seeing a little, you're seeing somewhat less of these impacts in other parts because you, you have traveled a lot South America, Central, and, and Mexico, so it's it's less of a pronounced decline there. Well, if you go there, you know, there's like just massive scale habitat loss in X, Y, or Z country. You know, Costa Rica often proudly promotes how wonderfully nature filled it is. And it is, but the distances between those virgin jungle cloud forest spots are getting separated now where you go from one to the next. There's not like this continuous patchwork as much as there used to be. Um, I was in Guyana a few years ago. And when you land at the airport, you come out, there's a big billboard. It says something like, welcome to Guyana. 85% of our jungle is still virgin. And we got up in a small airplane and we flew for 45 minutes over jungle that you could look from one horizon to the next and there's not a telephone pole, not a road, not a trail, just lush jungle. And so that filled my heart with joy to see 
wild areas of that much forest still intact. And that's great. But it's variable. You know, humans are becoming more and more populated. And with that, you've got now then you've got fires, too. Birds, thankfully, can open their wings and fly away away from a fire. But all the other critters that can't perish. Um, but that being said, then the demands are then placed on all the other neighboring birds that have their territory set up. And now you have these fire refugees to the tune of millions of birds get pushed out and have to go fill it. So, you know, after a few years or so, you know, a, a habitat can only sustain so many birds. And so if it's already sustaining that level of birds and a bunch of immigrants come in that are, um, you know, that, that live next door, that their houses are all burned, there's just so much pressure that it can take, you know, um, and there's that that issue. Uh, we're seeing, you know, we like a spotted owl right after the big fires last year, a young spotted owl showed up in Bolinas and there were all these other kind of uh, woodpeckery kind of fire refugees and things that, that showed up after all the Sierra fires. So they got to go somewhere and they're just going wherever they can and hoping for the best. I don't know what else to say. It's sad, but that's just the way it is. Well, maybe in the great sweep of things, longer time, this is just, you know, it's it'll be up and down in some ways. There was actually for, you know, there wasn't a, a bestseller book about 10 years ago or within the last 10 years called The World Without Us, which it basically talks about what would happen if humans disappeared like overnight. And I mean, even in cities, it's just it's kind of amazing. And this is projection, of course, but how how fast the recovery could be. So, yeah, maybe, you know. Um, so here's a couple of, you know, we're, we're, we'll go to some questions here, too. But here's a couple for me. And here's a tough one for you. What are your three favorite birds? <laughs> um, Don't think too hard. hard. I'm sorry? Don't think too hard. It's just, Well, you know. it, is, it is difficult because every, even the most subtle little like, you know, oh, okay, that's pretty good. Show me a toucan now. Each of these creatures, even like the, the level of subtlety to me is like a, a, is like a beautiful thing. It's like, it's not that way for no reason. It's like that for a reason. Every, every mark, every sound, every pattern, every little nuance and subtlety, every shape, every feather is there for a reason. It wouldn't be there without millions of generations of these birds, you know, forming into what they have become through evolution. Um, so they all, all birds, I love all birds, but uh, spotted owl is one really personal favorite of mine. Every time I see one, I just, they're just a joy to behold. They're, they're kind of like a confiding old soul of the old growth forest. You know, you can get pretty close to them and they'll just stare at you through their dark eyes. And, uh, they just have kind of a gentle look. You wouldn't think they were gentle if you were a dusky footed wood rat, but, um, they are the, the birds that are now really getting, you know, we remember the logging situation where the, you know, the habitat, the old growth forest was being preserved for the owls. And then people were losing their jobs through logging. Well, now spotted owls are getting a full on assault. And I don't, I don't I, I wish I could be more optimistic, but I don't have a lot of optimism for their long term survival because of a new cre creature that's come here called the barred owl and barred owls used to be wedded to like the southern swamps of, you know, like East Texas, Florida, the Carolinas, and they kind of went up to the Great Lakes and that was their world. And they're the ones that you hear whenever someone's in the swamp that goes, woo, 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 woo. That's the song of the barred owl. Well, as the forests of southern Canada started to be long, they like disturbed habitat, and they're a bigger, aggressive species, and they started to move west across the southern third of Canada 
few miles every year. And then boom, they got to British Columbia and people thought, oh my God, do you think these things are going to make it to what? Oh, boom, they're in Washington. Oh my God, do you think they'll make it to Oregon? Bam, they hit Oregon. Boom, they hit Humboldt. I found the first one from Marin County on the Bolinas Fairfax Road while imitating a spotted owl. Suddenly this thing came in. I heard its feet actually impact on the, the pine, scratchy pine bark. <laughs> And I looked up and here was this thing. It was like snapping its bill. It was all inflated with his wings out, really pissed off. And I videotaped it. It was like, oh, my God, this is a barred owl. And so barred owls displace, hybridize with spotted owls and eat spotted owls. So they're coming in fast and they're coming in hard. And now they're showing up in the Sierra and spotted owls go all the way to like southern Mexico. So there's different subspecies of spotted owls. They range from British Columbia to southern Mexico, and the barred owls are coming to get them. I hate to sound like that, but it's sad, but that's what's happening. So, and then my other favorite bird is the great swallowtailed swift, just this um, ridiculously beautifully aerodynamic. It's patterned like an orca. It's all black with these white saddles that go around its body, but they live in the you know, the tropics of Southern Mexico and they fly, you know, 100 and 130 miles an hour over the forest. And then any hummingbird, I'm a big hummingbird fanatic. I'm very impressed with hummingbirds. So those would be my three favorites, probably. What's the biggest one you've ever seen? The biggest species or hummingbird? The biggest species um, is a bird called the jabiru. It's a big white stork with a black head and a big red neck that you see in Belize. It's the tallest bird. The bird with the biggest wing spread I've seen is either the California or the Andean condor with like a 11 foot wing spread and several albatrosses are getting up there. Uh, the heaviest bird that I've ever seen, I think, would be probably either the trumpeter swan or the white pelicans are really, really heavy. Turkey maybe even is the heaviest bird I've seen. So who knows? Turkeys, right, right. Yeah. Somebody asked if you would uh, hear if you'd uh, had anything to say about red winged blackbirds. Red winged blackbirds are really cool, and uh, keep keep the California red winged blackbird in your bank account because down the road it might be actually split off into a separate species. So if you've seen red winged blackbirds back east, the ones that are all black with the red wing, and they've got kind of like this yellow border to their wings, shaped like a Nike logo. Those are the red-winged blackbirds that go from back east all the way over the Sierra to, to like the crest of the Sierra. You walk out your door in West Marin and you see a red-winged blackbird. They're all black with just red. And they're commonly referred to the bicolored blackbird. Not to be mistaken with the, a, an endangered species called the tricolored blackbird. We'll put that over here. But our race of red wing, the bicolored, which is just black and red, you see them at the sewage ponds all around town and everything. That bird is very, very different in the sexual role, the sexual look of the female compared to the East Coast species. So you look at an East Coast female and a California female, and they're super, super different. And, um, you know, at some point they may be, you know, split into a separate species. And the bicolored ranges from coast, saltwater, to about five to 600 feet in the Sierra. So it's, it's a coastal San Joaquin Valley into the foothills bird of California. And that's kind of it. And then... Question right from that, somebody asked also, why do birds sometimes, why do they get renamed and confuse people? Or, you know, yeah. Like, yeah, well, there's a group called the American Ornithological Union is what it was called. Now it's the American Ornithological Society. And usually that happens when there's a species pair, like uh, there's a bird out there called the yellow rumped warbler. And yellow rumped warblers are really, really common. But in the old days, they were called the Audubon's warbler. 
and the Myrtle Warbler because they're really different looking. They don't even really look that similar. And why they lumped them into one species, which they are now, the yellow rump warbler, people go, oh, it's a yellow rump warbler. It's either an Audubon's from the west or a myrtle from the north and the east. Well, the Audubon's warbler only breeds like in the Rockies and the Sierra. The myrtle warbler breeds from like southern Alaska all the way across to the east coast. And they have a white throat and ours is there's numerous ways they're different. Well, it may turn out that they re-split those again. So when they split them, they take a, a single species and go, you know what? These are actually two different species. And now through genetics, doing the DNA on birds, they're able to see how far apart they actually are. And so I would imagine pretty soon uh, the Audubon's warbler will be, I mean, the yellow one warbler will be split again. There's others. So most birds have their names changed like by that. Well, during the whole eruption during Black Lives Matter, bird, the bird community had to start really thinking serious about what are we naming these birds after? There's this little obscure bird that lives out in the grasslands called the McCown's Longspur. Well, McCown was this, you know, I don't know a lot about him, but he was a pretty monstrous uh, human being in the in, during the Indian Wars, if you will. And his this bird was named after him. And so now that bird is called the large billed longspur because it's the one with the longest bill. It's a little sparrowy thing. So uh, that was changed. That's why a bird's name is changed in that way. So they're either split or they're lumped and, and or they have their names changed for being correct politically, or, I mean, there's a bird called the long-tailed duck. It used to be called the old squaw. Well, why do they call it an old squaw? Oh, because it sounds like a bunch of old squaws talking. Well, that's not a very good name to call a bird. Let's call it the long-tailed duck. And so that name changed. So as humans, you know, evolve into, you know, higher thinking beings, we taking those things into consideration. And then a lot of the times there'll be a bird we think is one species like the red cross bill. And they start doing the DNA work and the voices of the birds and where they breed. And there's like eight different species. They're identical to us as human beings, but they're different species that we didn't even know. And so there's that. And so they're going to have to come up with all these other new names for those eight other birds. There's a whole variation of why names are changed. Somebody also asked if you, when you're watching, say, a movie or a show and you hear bird sound on there, do you immediately start to think about where they might be? Uh, you know, can you locate a set as it were? That kind of all thing. all the time there's some some local uh film people here in town i was bringing that up to about and they were surprised that that bird watchers even cared about the accuracy of birds and and it's either like on a sound set like remember the tv show mash well mash is supposed to take place in korea well they filmed it in la so you hear <laughs> california <laughs> quail in the background and you hear ash-throated flycatchers and you hear scrub jays and crows there's like there's no scrub jays in korea and so that is something a bird watcher can, you know, that every bird watcher can mention all the different movies they've ever seen. I wrote an article called Bad Birds about all the bad birds that are in movies. And it was um, Blood Diamond is a Leonardo DiCaprio movie is about like the blood trade, the diamond trade in Zaire, or I forget what country it was in Africa. And it was like this 
horrible world of you know diamonds and and just the the horrors that go along with that industry but all the birds that they had in the background were like blue jay cardinal easter screech owl i'm thinking aren't there like cool sounding birds in zaire i mean certainly there must be so there's a lot of movies you know we've all heard the the macho dodge truck commercial with the red tail hawk you know drive dodge trucks built tough and then they stick the red tail in there one funny sound is the cactus wren in hollywood movies before anybody gets killed or before something really diabolical happens they'll stick a cactus wren in and if you listen it's kind of a kind of a droning like a car not starting and it's just this creepy sound that i guess hollywood has always thought "Ooh, that's a creepy sound let's use it so there are tons of i have a list actually of all the wrong birds in movies and it's rather extensive hundreds was uh, Hitchcock's The Birds ornithologically correct? Yeah, yeah. You know, he had yeah. western gulls, which is what you would be attacked by if western gulls attacked you in Bodega Bay, and then crows and ravens. So, yeah, yeah. there wasn't a single bird that was inaccurate in there. But, you know, um, God, what was it? There was a movie. Um, <laughs> it was, I forget what it was called. It had Sean Connery in it, and he was like a grumpy old ex-professor, and he lived in a, in a skyscraper in New York, and he loved birds. And he always talked about the prothonotary warbler. And he was talking to one of his students, and he goes, oh, there's the prothonotary warbler there. And they show it out his window in the Bronx or wherever. It should be like a cement wall, but it's sitting in this like lush tropical forest where you would find, you know, prothonotary warblers or, or on, um, what was it? The um, uh, Charlie's Angels. Oh, I get pygmy nuthatches in my yard at Carmel. And I'm thinking, wow, that's pretty cool. Pygmy nuthatch there. They could be in Carmel and she's in her house. Oh, look, there's a pygmy nuthatch right there. And the camera swings around. But the bird that they portrayed was this jungle tropical thing called a troupial. And a troupial is like this gaudy orange and black bird with a blue face from South America. Oh, look, there's a pygmy nuthatch there. So they're always, you know, they, it's Hollywood. They do what they have to to thrill people. Uh, here's a tough one for you. Are there any birds that you really don't like or even hate? Well, there's birds that have behaviors that are accentuated by what human beings have done, most notably the brown-headed cowbird. Brown-headed cowbirds are native to North America. They're part of the ecosystem, and they ranged from the Rockies to about where the Appalachian starts. So they, they followed the, the ungulates, you know, the bison and deer and hooved animals around, and they ate the insects that they would kick up. But that bird will parasitize up to 40 nests a year. A female can lay 40 eggs in a year and she'll lay her eggs in other species' nests to, for her way she doesn't build a nest, you know. And so that bird that she's put her egg into has lost their ability to raise its own young because the cowbird usually outcompetes them. Well, with human beings' preoccupation with, you know, hamburgers and beef, there are now cows from Alaska to Florida, from Maine to South America, and cowbirds have followed them everywhere. And so cowbirds are exploding in numbers and in population. And so um, there's a lot of control work being done to try and reduce their numbers because, you know, if one cowbird female can ruin 20 to 40 nests a year, 
it's a wonder that birds are even going to survive. The other one are these, these murmurations that people send, these beautiful swarms of starlings. Well, starlings are an introduced bird. They're a, a mina. They're in the mina family from Asia and Europe. And they were brought here in like the 1860s, let it go into New York. And now there's, you know, hundreds of millions of them. And so whenever you see like 10,000 in a swarm, well, you can go, oh, those two birds constitute no bluebird nesting. And those two birds are a woodpecker that didn't get to nest because starlings are cavity nesters. They nest in holes, cavities in trees. So if you're a wren, a bluebird, a screech owl, a flicker, a woodpecker, starlings will move in, kick you out, raise their young in there. And so that nursery is then taken over by the starlings. But luckily, starlings populations have now not only flattened off, but just are just barely starting to decrease a little bit. And weirdly enough, in Europe, they're like really going down for some unknown reason. So we can always hope. I love birds. Starlings are beautiful, but we could do with less of them. The the invasive parasite kind of birds are the ones that are not. Yeah. Yeah. So I've been a California coast guy my whole life. And, you know, I'm probably stereotypical, but beyond crows and ravens, which I love. I've never been a big fan of seagulls, but my favorites are, are these these guys, the pelicans, right? Yeah. And, you know, I was surprised to see them at first for a second because I thought Sierras, you know, and then I realized, I remembered, you know, they're out on the back, on the east side uh, migrating and there are the lakes out there and so forth. So just from, you didn't, you didn't highlight this one, but you see them all the time, of course, when they come and they're in those beautiful patterns too. And I've always thought of them as flying dinosaurs, you know, I love them. Yeah. So, you know, what are they thinking? What do you what do you have to say about, about pelicans? Well, white pelicans, you know, the name pelican, pelican, you got a brown pelican and a white pelican. And that's about the, the only similarities um, that I'm sorry, I'm getting. Um, that's about the oops. Sorry. Did you did you lose? Oh, we still see you. Oh, you can. I'm so sorry. I can't see anything right now. Um, we can see you. I'm going to go backwards one. I'm so sorry. Well, I can't see anything right now, but um, with the white pelicans, um, they really, um, should I hit the launch meeting sign? I'm not sure. Okay, there we are. We can see you. Though. Okay, sorry about that. White pelicans and brown pelicans are really different species. There's two brown pelicans on Earth, ours, the brown pelican, and then off the Humboldt Current, off Peru and Chile, there's a giant brown pelican. It's almost identical to our brown pelican, but it's gigantic. It's really, really huge. Our brown pelicans, yeah, they're a big bird, but they're not particularly large or heavy as a pelican. All of the white pelicans are bigger. Australia has a white pelican. Africa has a white pelican. America has a white pelican. Eurasia has. So it's like every major continent has a big white pelican, and they're all white with an orange bill and black wingtips. And they're all kind of freshwater. They don't dive. We're all familiar with the brown pelicans plunging into the water. If somebody ever tells you, oh, yeah, I watch white pelicans dive, well, I would like to see a photo of that because I've never heard of that ever happening. They feed by seining. They get in the water and splash their wings like fishermen, and they 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 push the fish into shallow water and then scoop it up with their bill. So they don't ever take wing to feed. Whereas the brown pelicans, they plunge from way up in the air into the water and catch fish that way. So they're very, very different. And 
our birds, you know, they live in the southern San Joaquin Valley, up and down the valley. You see them, you know, soaring around near Novato. You see them there on the Bolinas Lagoon even sometimes. They're pretty infrequent. They're more freshwater. But you go to Abbott's Lagoon and the lagoon and you see them around. Well, when those things get up and soar, they'll leave like Bakersfield, the southern San Joaquin, and they'll get up and fly and glide. They'll circle, you know, they're on a thermal. They won't even flap their wings. And they'll get up to about, you know, 18, 19, 20,000 feet. Then they lock their wings without flapping and glide all the way over to Utah and Nevada for a late lunch and eat and hang out there. They literally will vault the Sierra just to go feed for a day or two on the other side. And they all breed near like Lake Salt, uh, Salt Lake and in a lot of areas in, in the inner mountain west. They don't breed really along the coast at all, although they occur here. And the brown pelicans, they breed uh, on islands off the coast of southern, off of northern Mexico, central Mexico. And I think a few even maybe breed in the Channel Islands. I'm not sure. But these are all young birds, mostly coming north to Bolinas as post-breeding wanderers, they call them. Those are birds that have already nested, and now they're coming up to to, uh, capitalize on the abundance of all of the anchovies and things that show up in August and September, October in California. Then they'll head on back to Mexico. And the the brown pelicans are a famous kind of case study in how, uh, ecological case study, in how human action to change pollutants and so forth has helped bring them back too, right? Yes. Yeah. Um, they're, they're doing pretty well. Um, my brother, oh my God, he was able to get footage from a woman that he met when colored film was just at its infancy. This lady that my brother met had, when she was a little girl back in, God, I, I can, I have to think that it was like the late thirties or early forties used to go to what is once was the Tulare Lake bed in the Southern San Joaquin. It was the largest body of water in California. Even, you know, because Tahoe, Nevada, Tahoe's bigger, but this was entirely in California, in the Southern San Joaquin. And there was this giant lake down there, Tulare Lake. Now it's all cotton, but there was a white pelican colony there. And she had this funky old color footage that she's like, hey, would you be interested in seeing this? And my brother was like, oh, my God, would I ever? And it was like a family picnic. This family was out on these levees in the middle of the Tulare Lake. And here were thousands of white pelicans. And this footage shows like little kids with their old fashioned clothes running around, throwing rocks at these pelicans, gathering up armfuls of the eggs and building pyramids. You know, I mean, just like super destructive. And the the adults are all sitting there, you know, drinking their lemonade thinking, oh, how sweet, you know. And then they off they went. The pelicans were all freaking out and flying. So they used to breed big time in the southern San Joaquin, but but no longer. Well, so I want to say thank you and congratulations on the book. Thank you. And uh, are you going to do another one or are you taking a long break now? (laughs) Well, now I'm illustrating an app called Flock, F-L-O-C-K, which is an app that helps unify all bird watchers. And as you type in the bird's name, an image comes up in my images. So I'm illustrating hopefully every species in North America. There's a thousand of those. So 320 species are already done with the Sierra book. So now I'm doing like Cardinal Blue Jay, all the East Coast and Oceany stuff that isn't in the Sierra book. And um, you can get the book, the Sierra book, if you're interested on my website. It's just keithhanson.com. And uh, it's available there for anybody who's interested in purchasing. And I send them out, get them out the next day. 
Very cool. And published by Heyday Books. And we actually did a new school talk some years back by the founder, Malcolm Margolin. That was pretty cool. That's on our website there. So, so Keith, yeah. thank you very much. Great, great time talking with you. And thank I'm going to back to Kira here. And uh, I'm going to go out and look for some birds. All right. Thanks a lot, you guys. Steve and Keith, thank you so much for being with us. And uh, Keith, your illustrations are just gorgeous. And your writing about each bird is just so unique and personal. And I love your bird imitations. Oh, thank you. <laughs> and th so thank you so much for your lifelong dedication to and your enthusiasm for our birds. Again, we'll have recordings produced of this conversation. And if you're on our mailing list, you'll see them come through, or you can follow our feeds on SoundCloud, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or YouTube, and you'll be notified when the recordings are posted. One final time, I'll ask you to please consider making a donation to help us keep these programs coming. Each donation is so important to us. And Keith, maybe you can take us out with your favorite bird imitation. <laughs> wow. Well, what, before I do that, I, I, I would be remiss if I didn't just point out um, my name is not the only name on here. Ted Beatty is the person that wrote the previous book. And Ted's contribution was the status and distribution of every bird in the book. Adam Duncan, who lives over in Woodacre, is the young man who put the, all of the artwork together. Yeah, he did the illustrations, but he laid out the book and gave it the whole flavor, the look of it. So that's Adam Duncan. I just uh, would be remiss without mentioning him. Um, God, um, great horned owls, you know, a lot of people talk about great horned owls. And that's one of the few birds that you can actually tell the sexes apart by their song. And it's one of the few birds where the female actually sings. And so the male and female, you will be laying in bed and you'll hear one close and maybe one far off. And the male has an extra note in its call. And so the male goes, hoo, 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 hoo. so it's like, Bum, 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 bum. And then it's the second part, da, dun, dun, has three notes. The female goes, hoo, 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 either two or one. So she's, hoo, 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 hoo. the male is, hoo, 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 hoo. so it's a little extra flourish there for the male, and that's the female. And then the baby, the incessant begging that goes for hours and hours that maybe drives you crazy. And I know I'm going to hurt my throat when I make the sound, but the chick goes, Anyway, it drives you drives you nuts sometimes listening to them. But that bird is saying, feed me, feed me. Stick a dead rat down my throat, please. <laughs> Excellent. That's great. Great, great concluding. <laughs> That's great. And, and uh, concept. <laughs> cool. All right. Well, Thanks. Steve Heilig and Keith Hansen, thank you for being with us at the New School at Commonweal. We'll see you next time. You've been listening to a TNS conversation with Keith Hansen and host Steve Heilig. Thank you for listening to TNS, the new school at Commonweal. The new school at Commonweal is directed by Michael Lerner. Our program coordinator is Kara Epstein. Our audio producer is Ken Adams. And our theme music is by Jeremy Cohen. Visit us online at tns.commonweal.org. That's tns.commonweal.org. Commonweal is spelled C-O-M-M-O-N-W-E-A-L. You can also find us on SoundCloud, iTunes, Facebook, YouTube, Vimeo, and Amazon Music. Thanks for listening.